0: Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.
1: This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin.
0: I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying to help them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. We love to receive them. If you have one you'd like to submit, we invite you to email it to us. Email address is lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. I have the good fortune of sitting next to my friend and colleague, Pastor Wes Peppers. Great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Pastor John. Always good to be here. Ready to
0: go. And you know my motto. We are
1: ready. If they're hard questions, they go to me. They go to you. But I just, you know, I can just flip them right back because you're you're the senior pastor here.
0: Well, let's see how, in how that more works More ways out. than one. Let's see how they careful with that.
1: <laughs> let's see how
0: that works out today. We're going to go to Revelation, not Revelation, Romans. Romans, Leah asks us,
1: who or what is them in Romans 119? Sure. That's a good question. We'll just read that. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them— for God has shown it to them. So the answer is going to be in the previous verse, and you find that in verse 18. We'll read that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So God is here is talking about a judgment that would come on those who know the truth. It's not that they don't know it. They know it, but they're suppressing it. They're preventing others from, from heeding it and understanding it and following it. And God, that is a very strong condemnation from God. It's one thing if a person is ignorant of truth and doesn't know it and follows error blindly. But when people know the truth and they, A, don't follow it, and B, try to prevent others from following it, that becomes very serious in the eyes of God. And so God does not take that lightly. So the to them in verse 19 are those that are suppressing righteousness and God's truth to others who would want to believe that. Amen. And we thank you
0: for that. Uh, A question, though, from April, who asks, in Exodus 21 and verse 20, does God condone slavery? It sounds like he's saying that slaves are property and didn't denounce the practice. God didn't condone polygamy. But Solomon had enough wives to populate a small town. David had way too many. Um, there are numerous things that God didn't condone that God's people did. One of them was slavery. You have to understand the milieu in which God's people found themselves. Um, by this time, or really at any time, they were in the midst of a, of a, of a world in which slavery was widely practiced. God's people were in Egypt, they were slaves, as a matter of fact. Um, it's the way the world worked. And without excusing slavery, of course, there's something you've got to understand. You had a bunch of agrarian people, or, or maybe they worked in humble trades. Uh, there was no welfare system. There was no such thing as a government handout or a bailout. And if you owed money, there was nothing you could do in many cases. The only thing you had was you. And so servanthood was a way that the economy kept turning and people paid their debts and so forth. Now, God didn't condone slavery. He moderated slavery. The verse that you mentioned here a moment ago uh, in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 20, If a man smite his servant, his slave, or his maid with a rod and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished. But down through millennia, slavery has been practiced. Not just here in North America, in the Caribbean, similar slavery, South America, in the Middle East, all around the world, in New Zealand, slaves were kept. It wasn't like this. Slaves were property. They were mistreated. They were killed at will. There was no system like this. And in God's system, too, there came a time when all slaves were to be released. There was a year of release So it was a different sort of a system. Yes, it was slavery, but I don't think that you need to think it's the same as the slavery that took place in the deep south in the United States or in some Caribbean islands or in Brazil. Brazil had slavery long Mm -hmm. after the United States, as a matter of fact. It It was different. I'm not saying it was okay. I'm saying it was different. God didn't condone it, but God had to work with a group of people who were affected by this practice and who had absorbed it into their own uh,
1: society. Yeah. He moderated it. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, I would add to that that, you know, Jesus, speaking of adultery in the Gospels, said, from, because of the hardness of your hearts, yes. he permitted divorce. But he says, but from the beginning it was not so. And the same was true about slavery. God, of course, would have never condoned that or, or set that up or propagated that in the beginning. But culturally, humans, as we've learned, go astray and they do their own thing even they, when they know what is right. And so what you find actually, I, I've studied this, it's very interesting. In the Old Testament, you actually find that the people were going to do it regardless of what God said. It was a cultural thing. But God, as you said, moderate. but he actually was giving slave rights. That's right. He was actually the one that was propagating human rights. The same thing with women who were unfairly divorced. He set up laws and statutes for them so that they could be fairly treated, even when the hardness of the hearts of the people were going to do what they did anyway. So God was actually one of the first um, right givers to those types of people when humanity shunned them and looked down upon them. Another thing God did. Israel said, We want a king. Mm-hmm. Samuel said, Oh, you don't want a king.
0: This is what a king will do. You don't want that. They said, We want a king. God said, Samuel, No, no, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. This is the God who's been rejected. He says, Give them a king. So God will allow us sometimes to do regrettable yes. and unfortunate things. Yes. We haven't learned by doing it right. Sometimes, if we do it wrong, then we will learn the sovereignty of God and our complete dependence upon Him. So there are many so, things that God allowed that he didn't design, didn't sanction, but he was working with a hard-hearted people. That's right. Lara asked us, I think, a good question. God says, my thoughts and ways are not yours. So then how are we to reason with him and talk to him? He says, come now, let us reason together how. He said that in um, Isaiah chapter 1. No, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. So we talk to God by getting on his plan. We can talk with him, may not understand God's ways because of the smallness of our intellect or understanding, but we come to God and we say, okay, help me to understand what you're getting at here. Let me hear from you. Here's my understanding. Mold it according to your perfect
1: will. That dialogue is a good dialogue to have. Yeah, and as we do that, God wants to bring us in harmony with his thoughts. So he will reveal his thoughts to us. He may not reveal everything, of course, because he's God and we're not. But he's going to draw us into his way of thinking. He's going to shape our minds and shape our hearts with his principles and his truths. And that's very, very powerful. So when God makes that statement, he's not saying that this is a statement of separation from me and we're going to stay separated because of this. No, he's helping us realize that our thoughts are often wrong and he wants to bring us into the right way of thinking. So he invites us and draws us through his spirit. So that's very, very powerful. Alexander asks us a question. If I sin a
0: known sin, not every day, but I go back to it and ask forgiveness, am I forgiven? And am I sinning against the Holy Spirit? So I've got to try to reword this question. Sure. If I do something well, with some frequency, and I know it's wrong, but I keep doing it, but then I go back to it, and then I ask for forgiveness, am I forgiven? Listen, I'll give you a Bible verse for that, First John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What we cannot discern here, Alexander, is your heart. Are you saying, oh, I have a sin, and I just love to do it, and I just want to do it, and I'm not going to stop? Or are you saying, "There's a sin, and man, I find myself falling. It trips me. I, 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 even, I go back to it, even when I know I shouldn't. That would be the human experience. Lots every Christian does that. There's a sin, and then it's repeated because you don't always get the victory over everything immediately. Some things will come back to haunt you. Are you sinning against the Holy Spirit? Maybe. What you are doing is you're hurting God, you're sinning against God. Are you committing the unpardonable sin? I mean, no, you're asking a question about this, it's concerning you. But if you keep on dabbling with this and you don't respond and repent and turn to God when God calls you to, yeah, you, that's a horse of a different color. So, Wes, I think it's really important to, for, for people to understand. I'm not trying to excuse sin. Mm-hmm. But yes. the fact of the matter is, we grow. That's right. And we learn. That's right. And we, we stumble and, and then stumble again and then, and then stumble again. Let's say there's that person who's practicing sin X, we'll just call it sin X, and they become convicted that it's not the will of God they want to change. Some sin gets deeply rooted in your life. It can. And it's just not that easy to flip a switch. Mm-hmm. It's just not that easy. So we need to understand how growth works and how God works with growth. Peter wrote that the long-suffering of our God is
1: salvation. God's patience works salvation in our lives. Yeah, that's right. And you know, sometimes we <laughs> can often, if you were to ask somebody else, uh, if you or, or if somebody were to ask you, would God be patient with a person who's doing X, Y, and Z, even if they're struggling through it? Would He still forgive them? They would say, "Yes, of course He would," because God is patient. He's loving and kind. But then when it comes to ourselves, we often think that God is not as patient and as kind as he would be with the person next to us. And the reality is that those are the devil's ideas. He's beating us up. He's trying to discourage us. He's trying to get us to turn away from God, thinking that there's no hope. But there is hope, and God is willing. If we come to him with a sincere heart, I mean, you look at examples in the Bible. People had to come to God many times. And I think of a great book where the author says we may have to come many times and weep at the feet of Jesus, but he's compassionate and kind. Just like a baby, when my children were trying to learn how to walk, they fell hundreds and hundreds of times. Not once did I ever push them down and say, ah, just stay down there, you're never going to walk. No, I always help them back up, knock the dust off their their pants, give them a little spat on the butt and send them on their way to try again. And that's what God does with us. And we have to remember that if we're focusing on, oh, I'm never going to get this, we're focusing on ourselves. And God says, I want you to look to me. I'm your strength. I'm the one that's going to help you. I'm the one that's going to give you victory. So look to him. Stop looking on your own strength, and God will help you. Amen. Nancy asks a really good question, and we're going to answer
0: it in about 60 seconds. Uh, Why did Jesus die for us? Well, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, Christ died for our sins. Adam and Eve were created perfect, sin came, that sin separated them from God. God could have just said, I oh, don't worry about it, but sin causes death and there's a penalty for sin. Uh, they had to experience that, otherwise God would have been setting aside his law. Jesus said, don't set aside the law, but don't have them die, let me die. That's the eternal death. I'll die for them. So Jesus died for our sins. We sinned, the, the, the wages of sin is death. And I'm fascinated. The word "wages" is used. Yes, it didn't say the punishment or the yes. penalty. The yes. wages sin earns you death. That's right. Jesus said, "I'll take that." The other thing is this: God so loved the world, the death of Jesus on the cross was not only a demonstration of the great pain that sin has called, caused the heart of God; it's a demonstration to us of the love of God, who would do that, die for the sins of wretched human beings. Jesus. Why? Because God is love. We appreciate your questions. We'll answer a few more of them in just a moment. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. There's something placed by God inside the human heart, a yearning to be free. And the actions of some went beyond the page and the lecture hall, To the tracks of something that became known as the Underground Railroad. Still away, still away, still away to Jesus, still away, still. Not long to stay
1: here. Watch Midnight to Dawn on itiswritten.tv.
0: Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. We love to answer your Bible questions. If you have one, or two, or ten that you'd like us to answer, would you get in touch with us here by email? line upon line at iiw.org line upon line at iiw.org here's a question for you sure it comes from april she writes
1: in revelation 19:10 what does it mean when it says the spirit of prophecy oh well, that's a great question it's a big question and uh, i'm going to look at another verse that kind of couples with that it comes from revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 now if you study this through, if you understand this, you realize that Revelation 12 is a timeline of God's church from its the New Testament church, from the birth of Jesus all the way down to the very last days. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 17, you find the church standing at the end of time, facing all the challenges uh, like Mark of the Beast and other things in Revelation 13. But here's what it says, "...and the dragon was enraged with the woman." And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so this is a description of God's people in the last days keeping the Ten Commandments and having the testimony of Jesus. Now we see what the, the testimony of Jesus is obviously something we want to have. Amen. But what is it? Revelation nineteen ten says it is the spirit of prophecy. And that is very simply the gift of prophecy given to God's church at the end of time to guide it through the dark times of the last days. And so the gift of prophecy we see very prevalent in the New Testament church and the book of Acts, and then it tends to kind of disappear for the longest time. But the prophecy in Revelation tells us in chapter 19 that that gift would be restored to God's church in the last days. It's an important spiritual gift to guide the church in dark times. So the spirit of prophecy... There's nothing but the gift of prophecy given to God's people well said, Ron
0: asks us Ron asks us, Christianity offers people a hope of eternal life, but if one does not care about eternal life, what happens then? One dies, then becomes dried up bones, then eventually burned to ashes and gone forever. What can be done for those who really do not care once one's life ends on this earth? Mm. yeah what okay what do you do about what do you do for people who don't care? you pray for them -hmm and you demonstrate Christianity, and you give them opportunities to encounter Christ, and you may share with them on one way or another. And if you have an atheist neighbor, you might want to give your atheist neighbor a, a Bible commentary series or or maybe a loaf of bread instead, uh, a kind deed, uh, help the atheist neighbor fix her or his car, and so forth. Yes. You want to serve people as Jesus did. What did Jesus do for those who didn't care? He loved them, and he served them. Some people just don't really seem to care, but... God can win those people.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this question is kind of framed at the end of their life. It's as if they didn't have any opportunity or chance while they were alive. Hey, really good point, that. But God is really working in their life even long before they die. Even for the hardcore atheists, God is bringing circumstances into their life. He's bringing people into their life to give them opportunity to believe. And likely, if they have died not believing that, it's not because they haven't had opportunities or chances but God gives us a million opportunities in this life, and every single day that we take a breath is an opportunity. So we'll find at the end of time, in, the, in that final judgment that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, that when God reveals to the people who are lost why they're lost, they will see all those opportunities. And everyone in the universe will agree that everyone had an opportunity to accept him, but that that the fact that they didn't isn't because oh if they'd have just had one more chance no it's because in their own heart they secured that decision
0: you know what I believe I believe there are not that many true atheists
1: mm-hmm. I, here, I would
0: agree with here's that. why here's why I say that an atheist says there's no God there's no God my question for that atheist is how do you know right many atheists are atheists because well I don't like Christians and I heard what the, that Christian person said about that, and I don't want to identify with that, that's la- that's lazyism, not atheism. An atheist is somebody who said, listen, I've looked at the evidence, and I've, I've read the stories, and I just reject that. You've got to respect that. Sure. you know, Honesty. If, if someone says, I just can't get my head around that, sure. Now, typically your experience comes into it. I had some lousy Christian neighbors, and a guy at the church disrespected me, and so on. Yeah, that's part of it. That'll add to that. But you can't tell me you're an atheist if you're like, oh, I don't know. Christians don't drink. Oh, I wouldn't want that. Christians don't believe in sex outside marriage. They don't smoke pot. Well, why would I that's want to blurry. be one of them? That's just, that's just selfishness, man. That's not atheism. That's just lazyism. And the one that really intrigues me is agnostics. A lot of young people say, oh, I'm agnostic. Well, an agnostic is somebody who says, yeah, I just can't know. Yeah. So you can know that a cell phone works. Mm-hmm. You can know uh advanced mathematics because you've been to university you can know all kinds of deep stuff but you can't know if there's a god did you see a sunrise ever did you hear a baby laugh did you watch a puppy did you see a tree grow Did you ever think about how conception works ever think about that oh yeah I've, i've really thought that through but man i don't know if there can be a god did you read the Bible? Did you read the prophecies, the time prophecies, the prophecies in Daniel chapter 2 and see how incredibly it fits together? If you there's something seriously amiss. If you can live in the west, in the west, no, even in the east, sure, anywhere. Anywhere. Look up in the heavens and yeah. go, no, I don't know. Could there could there be a God? I don't know. Maybe it all happened on its own. I think a lot of it's a cop out.
1: Yeah, it is. It really is. And there is more than enough evidence that we have from Bible prophecy, from science, confirming ancient Bible practices is scientifically true and helpful to our society. There's so much evidence, biblical archaeology, that a person can not have to hang their faith on just this blindness, but that there are solid facts that we have today that give us the evidence. And, you know, I think of the uh, question that Jesus asked, you know, will, will you also believe? Uh, he asked that to Mary. Will you believe? What will you do with the evidence of Jesus? Because it's there. It's always staring us oh, in the yeah. face. How are we going to respond to that? And being a former atheist myself, you know, I came to the conclusion of that hardcore evidence. And I said, there's no denying this. It is obviously clear that there has to be a God. That the Bible is true. And so what am I going to do with that? And when you when you see that combined with the love of god that is portrayed in the bible for you individually as a person you, it's hard to resist it it's yeah, very hard yeah I, I don't
0: want anyone to think i'm, a, I'm against atheism i'm all, all for all. it i'm sure. all for it if you if you want it knock you yourself have the out. freedom to do that yeah but but my 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 deeply held conviction is that a lot of atheists aren't you say they are. I've just never really yeah. thought it through.
1: There's some difficulty in
0: the life for many of them. Yeah. It was for me. Yeah, yeah. There's some challenges going on, or they're just too lazy, or they just love sin. Yeah. yeah. To,
1: I don't l- mind saying anything. Let it me anymore. add this, that to know for sure that God doesn't exist means you would have to know everything there is to know in the universe. Sure. And you can't do that, because you could know 99%, and God could be in the 1% you don't know. That's right. Likewise, I could know only 1% or considerably less of all there is to know in the universe. And I could still know that God exists because he's revealed himself to me. And he's done so in this world. You just take a look around. You look at the beauty of flowers and plants and animals and the complexity of life. There's not a chance that it could come about by chance.
0: Valerie asks us, if no one is in hell at this time, then what about Cora, Dathan, and Abiram and their families in Numbers 16, 24 through 34? You know, we could I, I could read that, but I'm not going to, and here's why because they were just swallowed up the ground, opened up and swallowed them. No different than being buried. Yeah, they, they didn't go to hell. Right. They were in the grave. You know, yes. sometimes in the Bible, yes. the word hell is used, and it means the grave. Mm-hmm. But Korodathan and Abiram rebelled against God in a very obnoxious way, and God demonstrated his godness and the folly of their actions. The ground opened up and swallowed them. They're um, still under the ground somewhere in the Middle East. Cynthia asks us, it says in Revelation 12, the wicked will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ashes cannot be tormented. They have to be alive to know they are being tormented. Let's stop there because there's a part two, but let's go on with that. Revelation 20 and verse 10. They're being tormented
1: day and night forever and ever. What about it? Because it says
0: it. It says it straight up.
1: Well, the Bible uses the word forever, not always to describe forever, but an event that will happen for a certain amount of time. In fact, more than 50 times in the Bible... The word "forever" is used for an event that's already ended. Yep. And uh, you know, just to give an example, that uh, Hannah took her son um, Samuel, Samuel, up to the temple and said that he'll be dedicated there forever. Well, he wasn't there forever. He was there for the rest of his life. Jonah was swallowed by the whale, and uh, he said, "I was in the the earth uh, in the and the, the earth bars and were about me forever, forever." And no. so we say the same thing today. We go to the store, oh, I had to wait in line forever. That's right. And it's not always that, but it can be used to describe a very specific amount of time, and that's what we find here. Yeah, and and the
0: result of this destruction will be eternal. Yes. No question, right. it'll last forever. It'll last
1: forever. Yeah. And so you can't have, let's just add this, you can't have it both ways because it says also that the fire, in Revelation 20, the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. same passage, same passage, same passage. You can't be devoured
0: forever. That's right. Devoured. That's is wrong. Right. So you have yeah, to look concealed. at the
1: context of it,
0: and and that'll help with the answer. Cynthia, we really hope you think this through because it's it's worth getting right. I I, I remember a fellow well-known preacher, uh, author, and so forth. He investigated hell. When another well-known preacher came out and said, "I don't yeah. think there's a hell," or oh, they didn't like that. Sure. So this guy writes a book, and his conclusion is. I don't know why God would want to burn people forever and ever, but if he wants to, that's his business. Mm-hmm. Well, the good news is he doesn't want Does to. Does it? What would God get out of burning people forever and ever? That's a nasty thought. It goes on here. As Cynthia asked the second part of the question. What about the rich man and Lazarus asking to dip his finger in water and give relief and to warn his brothers? That's in Luke chapter 16. Mm, Luke sixteen. What sayest thou, briefly
1: now, because we don't have time, yeah, sure enough. about the rich man and Lazarus? Well, if you look at the way that Jesus starts the parable, uh, or starts the story here, he says there was a certain rich man in verse 19. Now, if you look at, this, at the previous stories that Jesus tells, he starts many of them the same way. There was a certain rich man, and each time he starts it that way, he's telling a parable. That's right. Which is a story that illustrates a point. Now, if you look at just the the description of the story that um, he says uh, that Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom, well, that would be a large bosom to be able to hold it a second would. person. It would. He uh, he calls to Abraham to have mercy on him. Well, the Bible tells us that only God can have mercy. He also says, "Let the the water, the one drop of water, be on my tongue to cool this torment." That's not even realistic. No. So obviously these are just uh, illustrations to demonstrate a very specific point. So the story is a parable. Yeah. And there are certain points in there we, we don't have time to plumb their depths.
0: Um, I recommend that it is written Bible study guides. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And Jesus said in there, um, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, mm-hmm. you know, he's talking about how, 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 what, what will they do then? And, and the story is an appeal to the people then to hear Moses and the prophets and to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and an appeal for us to do exactly the same. I've appreciated this time. Thanks for yeah, taking time. Been great. Thank you for taking your time and for sharing your questions with us. Remember to get a question to us, please email us lineuponline at iiw.org. It's always fun. We're looking forward to seeing you again for more next time. With Wes Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. Line Upon Line is brought to you by It Is Written.